Hello and welcome to another episode of the Childhood Evolved podcast. I'm your host, Teacher Alex. This show is all about continuing to evolve the state of childhood forward. It wasn't that long ago in human history that the state of childhood wasn't even considered to exist at all, and it has evolved forward because people have pushed it. My name's Alex and I'm a teacher, preschool teacher. I've had a lot of questioning throughout the years of my work and instead of coming up with answers and being satisfied, I usually just come up with new questions. But this entire process of questioning brings me to a deeper understanding of my work, and it brings me into conversations with children and families and other parents and teachers, which enrich the knowledge base and just the appreciation for everything that goes into childhood. So this podcast, in a lot of ways for me, is to start and continue these conversations with you, the listener, so that we can all make more informed decisions and do the best that we can do by our children who are growing up today in 2019. So if you haven't done so yet, I'd really encourage you to please go and check out my Patreon account, which you can get to at www.patreon.com slash childhood evolved. And I'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. But what Patreon is, is really a way for my supporters and followers to sign up and show their support on this social media platform, as I guess what you could call it. And there's ways to do that in a very inexpensive way, but these little little bits of support really add up. My lowest tier is $4, and that $4, it goes a long way. And if enough people are contributing in, it enables new doors to open for the show. For example, I'd really like to expand my equipment and get more microphones and I can start doing interviews. And in order to get to that level, I'm going to have to do some new software and editing programs and things like that and, and get more, get a second microphone. And I'd really like to look into all of that and, and expand this show. As you know, I'm a, a preschool teacher by day and I, I love it. And it doesn't leave an unlimited amount of time left over to work on the show and it doesn't necessarily generate a huge amount of money either. So every little bit of support helps and I'm so appreciative to the patrons that I have so far. I have a couple on there and as promised in my $8 a month level, I will give you a shout out and a thank you on the show. So Kathy from Rhode Island is my first $8 level supporter. So thank you very much for your support. So please just go at least check out my Patreon site and I'll link it in the show notes so that you can click on it and see what it's all about. So thanks for tuning in today. Uh, there's a topic that's been very prominent on my mind in general for years and especially in my work and it's been getting to be bigger and bigger and bigger and it has to do with screens and technology and their impact on all of our lives. So and things are changing so much faster, and it's hard to know. It's hard to look back and, and think about when a specific change came. Like I was babysitting the other night, and they had an old iPhone, and we were thinking, can we pair it up to the radio and play music? Does it have Bluetooth? And we're trying to think, like, it's, it's a phone from, I don't know, 10 years ago. Did they have Bluetooth then? Like, I don't even remember when Bluetooth became a thing. It's just something that we have in all areas of our life now and it's it's kind of it's really cool to evolve forward 
and have all of these new technologies, but it kind of happens in a lot of ways outside of our awareness and our consciousness. And we're not really thinking and kind of keeping track of it and kind of making conscious decisions. And that's kind of what one of the things that kind of bugs me and that I've been working out in my own life. So just let's say 10 years ago, that's a good point of reference. 10 years ago, 2009, I had a cell phone. I used it to text and I could make calls. I'm not super huge on phone calls. I'm more of a meet in person or texting. So that was pretty much it. That's really all that that phone did. And if I went out and left it at home by accident, it's like, oops, but it's not really a major thing. And everyone else that I knew pretty much was doing the same thing with their phone. And so seven years ago, I moved to LA. I remember I had my first smartphone, which it was just kind of some generic model. I don't even know. But the really cool thing, and I was so excited for this phone because it could play music. And I had a Spotify account. And this was like really new and really cool because back in college, like you'd have to either pay for each song or I don't know, try to download it or something. It wasn't, you weren't able to just have literally every song that's ever been created in in human history able to stream from your phone and pretty much every song is on Spotify and I I pay 10 bucks a month and I think you don't even have to pay I I think I pay just to get the ads off of there because I can't stand the ads especially when I'm using the music to fall asleep and I think I can download playlists or whatever for 10 bucks a month and so that that was a really cool thing and I think maybe like Google Maps in the car was the other really cool thing And that was pretty much it. And so then I didn't even have an iPhone until 2015. I got an iPhone and it was like so much quicker and and just seems neater and more organized. And so fast forward a few years, I can't pinpoint the exact moment that this all happened. And it certainly didn't happen all at once. But recently, and I think many of us may have had this, this kind of a moment or might be looking forward to having this kind of a moment where we say, hey, every like every single thing I do is somehow on the phone, taking photos, sharing and looking at other people's photos, my banking, downloading music, my shopping list, the alarm clock, a timer when we're cooking. We can read on our phones with Kindle or Nook. I have my guitar tuner and my chords on my phone, you know, talking and texting, which is what it's technically for, right? You can have social media on your phone, which I've now taken off, but certainly people are using social media primarily on their phones nowadays and in part because of that the time spent on social media has gone way up because it's in our pocket around the clock but anyway social media google maps uh, my journal for a a while there i was just journaling my notes into my phone rather than writing them or writing them in my into my computer typing them into my computer i have an app that tells me which airplane is flying over which i'm i love airplanes so that one's really cool for me you can just point your phone if you're at the airport watching planes, you point your phone and it just tells you probably too much information about the airplane. Honestly, like its altitude, its speed, where it's coming from, the airline. Um, and they don't really regulate that information as of now. But anyway, I got that app. Um, the rewards apps for restaurants and stores. Grabbing a lift. Uh, I pay my car. I pay my bills on the phone. Starbucks has an app, which I know it's probably super antisocial, but I, I love that feature of being able to pull into the parking lot or or pull over five minutes before you get to Starbucks and order the drink and you just walk in and you grab it off the counter and you don't even have to wait in line or anything. It's probably overall uh, not a great thing for humanity, but being so introverted, I love that feature. 
Uh, I review books on Goodreads and keep a list of what I've read. And, you know, even our flashlight is on our phone now, right? So we're not talking about these huge changes over the last 50 or 100 years. You know, I'm talking about 2015, four years ago. And this didn't happen all at once, but I think it's like that frog in the pot that gets slowly warmer and then it doesn't know it's being boiled. And not that this is all really, really bad and, and we're being boiled either, but in the sense of it's a really rapid change in how we interact with the world. And I think it's happening. I know that it's happening largely outside of our awareness and our consciousness. And so as I've become more aware of it, I've been less and less comfortable with it. And there's reasons I can articulate. And there's some feelings that are harder to put into words. Like one easy example, I went to a workshop on parenting a couple years ago. And the speaker asked everyone, raise your hand if you use your phone for your alarm clock. And everyone raised their hand, 98% of the people there, including me. And so she said, this presenter said, so when you get up in the morning, you hit that alarm clock, you turn it off, and the first thing that you see to start your entire day is these news alerts, these horrible things happening in the news on your phone. There's been a shooting or, or natural disaster or whatever, and so there it is right in your face. You're not even awake yet, and before you've interacted with your child at all, you've got that news right in your face. And so I turned off those notifications and, you know, I went a step further and went out and bought an analog alarm clock, which was not even that easy to find, but I found one at Target, cheap, eight bucks, plug it into the wall and it shows the time and you set your alarm and it rings in the morning. And so now I put my phone away at night. That's an easy example of something concrete that is just a little bit better if we actually take a step back from the technology. But there's also just this kind of creepy awareness that like, hey, there's too many eggs in one basket. Like this one little screen in our pocket is responsible for way too much, at least of my life. And if the battery dies or it gets lost, then we can't do anything. Like we can't pay for our food at Whole Foods because we're trying to use Apple Pay or we can't log into our bank and, and see how much money we have like it's it's too much it's too many eggs in one basket and it's just a little bit creepy in its own way and so i don't i really don't think for any of us this was ever anything close to a conscious decision to say hey let's just uh put everything on this little rectangle in our pockets cool and i mean there there is so much good there there's so much benefit in it like having all that music there's a lot of convenience there's a lot of ways to save money like when i learned how to play guitar at camp um, I had a guitar tuner, really nice one, and it strapped, it, it clipped to the guitar, and it was like 35 bucks, and I would tune my guitar. So that thing broke long ago, and now I just downloaded the app, and it was either free or, I don't know, two or three bucks. So there's a lot of ways that we can actually save money with these apps and, and devices. But recently I read a book by Cal Newport, and it's called Digital Minimalism, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. But he makes a point that because things add value to our lives with technology, we just automatically add them into our worlds. We ask the question, can we, can we get a benefit? Yes. Then we add it to our worlds. And we don't consider the full picture, what the risks are, what are the downsides and the costs, what are the alternative ways we could do this. And it's a really, really good book. It's a really thought-provoking book that'll make you think about how you use technology and its role in your life. And so since I read that book, I've been much more intentional about the role of screens in my own life. Um, 
you know, if nothing else, just to try to not have all the eggs in one basket, just to experiment with how things feel when they're more analog. And I got to tell you, it feels a little more relaxed, a lot more relaxed and freeing. I don't have the phone. If the phone is constantly doing everything, then it's notifying you of all this other stuff. You know, someone texts you and it pops up while you're driving and there's that primitive part of your brain that has a little mini anxiety attack because it feels like ignoring someone and there's a tribal thing with, with it being really dangerous to do that. And so you have cars swerving off the road because people are trying to answer a text while they're driving. Um, so like this morning, for example, I looked at the directions to the bookstore. I wanted to go to a new children's bookstore to get some books. I looked at the directions before I left the house and I it's not that far. I didn't know exactly where it was. And so as I approached it, I had to slow way down. I'm, I'm looking for the store. Cars are flying around me. It's LA. People drive fast. And just all of a sudden in that moment, it felt like something like a blast out of the past, just crawling along, looking for your store and pulling into a space because we don't do that anymore. We just wait for the GPS to show its little dot that you're there. And you can make an argument, certainly, that this is probably a good example that it might have been better to use the phone. But I don't know. It's nice to just be off the grid and I'm self-reliant. I'm using my own skills and keeping them sharp, my own mind and my own observation skills of the world I'm living in. And hey, I noticed all these other little stores along the bo- along the street that I wouldn't have noticed otherwise. I would have totally tuned them out. And so our, our power to be mindful and observe our world is also strengthened. And I found a parking spot and I didn't miss the store. I, I parked right in front and went in. So I'd really recommend that Cal Newport book, Digital Minimalism, if you want to kind of dive further into that technology detox in your own life. And I've really been working on it a lot just for myself, and I've seen the benefits and the way it kind of, the way your time gets so carved up and you can really do something to manage your time better so that there's more blocks for the things you really want to do and not just get pulled into answering texts and then jumping over to Instagram and replying to people and all of a sudden your evening's gone. And so as I've gone through this process for myself, I've been thinking a lot about children and there's just they're on screens nonstop. Do you see them walking around outside, looking at phones, looking at screens? And I was in the bookstore yesterday, which yes, I'm in bookstores quite a bit. <laughs> um, so I'm in the bookstore, and I had a little pile of books, and I wanted to flip through them. And I know there's this spot where there's these chairs at the end of each aisle, and all the chairs are full, but they're full by children which is good children in a bookstore, right? But they're all just transfixed by their screens and they looked like they were playing some kind of game or something. And that's it. They're surrounded by books, but they're all staring at a screen. And so this is really my big concern for children growing up in 2019. You know that the average user of Facebook spends somewhere between 50 minutes and an hour a day on the site. That's their average. And I think I, think I got that fact somewhere in, in Cal Newport's book can't remember exactly but an hour a day i can't imagine that like i've never really felt that pull of social media myself scrolling through and looking at memes of dogs and cats and pictures of other people's vacations i don't know i i'd rather meet up with a friend in person and have a a cup of coffee or a drink and maybe that's kind of like part of my introvert sort of thing where i'm more about like one person and having a deeper connection than all of this overwhelming information that could be part of it. But I also suspect it's because I was raised as a reader. And so if I have a spare hour in my evening, 
I want to go grab my my history book of the Supreme Court and just dig in. I'm waiting to find out what's going to happen next in these cases I'm reading. And, you know, so I don't really have like a, a, a research set of facts or anything to support that theory. And I'm not even sure if it's really a legitimate correlation. But if you think about it, it makes sense that if you're a reader, if books are your go-to, other things are just not going to be as satisfying. Thumbing through Facebook or Instagram, I mean, I, I get it. It's kind of a nice way to tune out and flip through your friends' pictures and see what they're up to. And I do. I used to do that, but it would be 10 minutes, not not an hour. And I was really surprised when I read that fact that it really is an hour a day that people are spending on there. It was genuinely surprising to me. And so it makes sense to me that if children are raised to be readers and they want to read, that these digital distractions might be less appealing. So that's kind of a theory that I think has a lot of validity to it. And I, I'm definitely going to toss it around my mind a little more and see how it plays out in the world. So I just recently got my hands on this new book, which is really exciting, right? New book. Um, it's called How to Raise a Reader. And it's by Pamela Paul and Maria Russo, and they're editors at the New York Times Book Review. And actually, that section of the paper is where I found out about this book. It was on the back cover um, of the Sunday paper. So I ran out, grabbed the book, and it's really just a wonderful book. It's full of concrete advice for how to foster a culture of reading, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a parent. Definitely, it's geared towards parents. And the book goes through each age and stage and just talks about what you can do to raise a reader, like they say, and they have a lot of actual um, book examples, too. There's lists of books with little pictures and things, and it's just kind of a beautiful book, and it, it's it's been really helpful in guiding my thinking around this topic as a teacher. And so, anyway, there's a lot of really, really good advice. One of the things they say in that book is school is where they're going to teach all the less interesting stuff, the phonetics and the learning letter names and what kids are reading in school when they're learning to read is, is kind of weird. Like I remember being a student teacher and I had to actually time the kids with a stopwatch, which was terrible. I could do a whole nother podcast on that. Uh, but they're reading this story in this big textbook about like a clown. And I don't know, it was weird. So school is where they do that kind of boring stuff. And home is where they get to read. Like school is where they have to read. Home is where they get to read. And it's where they get to enjoy reading. So that's a piece of advice they gave in that book, which I thought was really powerful. So Pamela Paul also wrote an opinion piece in the New York Times called How Do You Raise a Literature Lover? And my biggest takeaway from that little article was if you want a child to read, like let's say you take this book and you put it kind of on a high shelf and you say, mm, I don't think you're ready quite yet. And you walk away and then you wait for your, your child to like, sneak that book off and read it under their covers at night with a flashlight. And so basically the point with this article was, I think it started off, someone was recommending a book as a punishment instead of like going to your room or timeout or whatever. And it just horrified the author because she was like, no, like you get to read. Reading is a reward, not a punishment. And that's really how we start off creating this really special culture around books and around reading and we role model that to our children by being readers ourselves. In the book, How to Raise a Reader, they give the advice that if you want to raise a reader, you have to be a reader. And that's kind of the number one advice. And it's like in bold type at the top of the, the page in the book. And so kind of 
reflecting on my journey, I'm I'm sort of surprised. Like I love reading and books, and they're it's a big passion of mine. And of course, I love children and teaching, but I've, I've surprisingly never really connected the two and taken a huge interest in children's reading at school. I mean, we have a lot of great books, and we read to the children all the time. And I read, you know, in the way I was taught in college, reading with children, not necessarily to them or at them, reflecting back, having conversations, and and hearing their questions and, and doing all of that. But I've just never, I don't know, I've never really connected it to my own reading and what reading means to me on a personal level. And so all of a sudden I'm doing that right now. I'm like having this awakening on this topic and trying to tune in and analyze what I read to them and to read to them more and to go even deeper and just to continue this process of connecting my the, the reading I do now, which is on a daily basis, and now I'm thinking back to my own childhood and, and what it was I was reading and what had the biggest impact on me. And I even ordered some of those older books that I haven't read since I was a kid. And I'm excited for them to come in the mail and to kind of maybe be reminded of what these stories are that guided me so much when I was growing up myself. And so kind of like a side point to all of this, uh, you might be thinking of like a Kindle or one of those screen devices right now when I'm talking about books and reading. And I got to say, like, I was on that whole ebook thing for a while, and there's certainly benefits. The books are cheaper, and it's super convenient, and there's a lot of benefits there. But I've really gotten away from it over the last few years for a few different reasons. Number one, I, I would read on my phone or my computer, which was fine. It was easy to do, but the distractions don't go away, the little notifications and things popping up. And just the knowledge that you can minimize your book and go look up a word uh, on Google because you don't know what it means or check your email real quick or respond to a text. Those are right there. Whereas when you're sitting with a book and that's it, you're sitting with your book and your phone's out of reach, like physically out of reach, put away, your mind can really settle into the world that that book creates and pulls you into. And that's not really possible, at least for me, with the distraction of screens. I guess if you have like just a pure Kindle device that really only reads, it could be a little bit different. Although in the book, they do say that Studies have shown children are not going to retain as much, even if it is a Kindle versus a print book. And maybe even adults are not going to retain as much of what they're reading. Not exactly sure what the underlying reasons are there. They didn't get into it. But So even when I have my paper books, though, I have two or three books like on the table or next to me, and I can kind of get like to switching back and forth and not settling in. So I don't know if you can relate to this at all, like the thought of leaving the house for the day. Even when I go to work, it's like, okay, which books am I going to take and which books am I going to leave? I don't know how I'm going to feel on my break. Like if I'm going to want to read my novel or go back through the spiritual inspirational book I'm reading right now or maybe finish the newspaper. So it's like this whole process of trying to figure out which books do I take, which books do I leave? And it's better just to take more and not be regretting because that happens all the time. Like, oh, I wish I had, you know, authority, which is a book I'm reading right now. It's back, it's back home on the couch and I can't read that. And that's that's the book I want right now. Especially if I can't have it, especially if I know it's at home, then I really want that book right now, right? And if I'm going out of the house to read, like to a coffee shop, like forget it. I have a whole shopping bag full of books and just lug them on into the coffee shop. So uh, the idea of like reading a Kindle with your entire libraries on your phone, I mean, that's super cool, right? But it's also like, I can imagine myself just sitting there staring at the thing not being able to commit to reading one book. 
Um, so that, that may be more of a me thing. I don't know how that kind of distractibility goes with other people. But the other thing about a real paper book is that they sit on your shelf and they're beautiful and they call out for your attention. The other day I was sitting on my couch and I think, I think it was homesick um, a couple weeks ago. And I'm just looking at my, this Southern Reach trilogy of three books that's been on my shelf for years by Jeff Vandermeer. And they're kind of a sci-fi, creepy horror, um, kind of hard to describe, actually weird kind of books. And I love them. And they're just kind of calling out to me. And they're sitting there. And so I pulled the first one off the shelf. And I read it quickly. And now I'm into the second book. And it's really only because I was just sitting on my couch looking at my, my bookshelf across the room. And that's what called out to me. And so just having that visual cue and seeing the book. Like I, my books are everywhere. They're all around my apartment. And especially the ones that are super important. Like the ones where I need reminders my books on mindfulness or, or my um, book on braving in the wilderness by Brene Brown, for example, is sitting right on the couch. And it, even though I'm not going to read it, like I'm looking at it right now, I'm not going to read it, but just looking at it gives me a feeling and reminds me of what's in that book and what's so critically important to me. Books have their own sort of energy contained within them. I have an Elizabeth Kluber Ross book. I have a few of her books. And I was working in the hospital as a volunteer in college uh, like around 10 years ago. And there's a bunch of handwritten stuff in there that's super cool to look back on after all this time. Uh, my copy of Harry Potter from when I was 12 has chocolate smears in it. And I remember being, you know, curled up in my bed, really just diving deep and devouring that book. And it was around Halloween time and I was eating candy. And I mean, that may not be taking the best care of a book, but of course I was 12 and it, it's cool to like look at that and see the evidence of what was going on at the time that I was reading it. Um, my Southern Reach trilogy I just mentioned has beautiful art on the cover, inside and out. It's a paperback and there's still art on the inside cover. And I kind of often flip back and look at the cover when I read these. These books in particular are very mysterious and, and it's almost like a poem turned into a novel in a lot of ways with the way he puts words together. So I kind of look at the pictures to try to draw more meaning out of it. I don't. That doesn't necessarily go for other books, depending on the level of intention they put into the into the artwork on the cover. It may or may not connect. But that's just another example of something that's not going to happen when you're reading on a digital device. You know, I saw a play over the summer um, under mysterious circumstances. I think it was called, and it was a play about Sherlock Holmes and this Sherlock Holmes fanatic who was um, trying to get a hold of these unpublished manuscripts. Really cool mystery kind of play. But what really gripped me is in the opening monologue, the the main actor was giving this, this monologue, and he was, I think, talking to like a college class, or what it was supposed to be. But he had said, imagine like your house is on fire, and you're trying to, what what do you grab? What do you take with you? And on your table is like a stack of letters that your mother wrote to you decades ago. And do you take them or not? Well, maybe you already have scanned them into a computer somewhere. So do you leave them? And like, of course not, because those are the originals. Those are the, the her pen to the paper and ink and the original letter. And doesn't it contain some kind of energy, right? So of course we, we take those letters with us and books to me are the same way. I remember 
where I was, like the Southern Reach Trilogy, I read probably about five years ago. And just holding that book in my hands, even tucking it under my arm and walking out of the house for the day, brings back a feeling and a sense of where it was at in my life when I originally read it. And so it has a deep emotional meaning and significance to me just to even hold that book or to look at it on the shelf across the room. So the news is another really good example in this area we're talking about here. So I got myself off the drama of watching cable news um, in the last year or two. I've kind of realized like I'm an empath and I'm a highly sensitive person. I have anxiety and I would get kind of hooked into watching like this coverage of shootings or or natural disasters or the political carnival kind of stuff. And you watch on the TV and it's just playing these horrible videos on loops. And then there's ads rolling across the bottom and that, or not ads, but there's other stories rolling across the bottom of the screen in that little ticker tape. And there's ads and then there's commercials. And it was just like really overwhelming and overstimulating. So I just kind of cut that. And then I kind of had a period of not really consuming the news at all which didn't really feel like a great way to be a citizen either. Then I started subscribing and reading the paper online, which is a lot better, but it's there's still all those distractions we talked about with screens earlier. And recently I, I signed up for a trial of getting a paper, like a paper delivered to the house, which has been coming for the last couple of months. And I've really been loving it for a, a couple of different reasons. It's a little more expensive, um, I pay around 20 bucks a month for each one. I get one local paper, LA Times, here in LA, and I get a national paper delivered too. Um, so it's, a, it's 20 bucks each a month, but I am also feel like I'm supporting print journalism, which is really important. And I, I got to imagine their budget has been slashed with people not reading things that are printed anymore. And there's no distractions. So now each morning I get that paper. I look forward to it coming. It comes every morning. It's sitting outside. I get my coffee and I read through, or I, I at least skim it through if I'm in a rush and make a note of the articles I want to read later. So now I've been keeping up to date and informed and kind of doing it on my own terms without advertisements or distractions. And it's been an important part of my day. And that's just one example. There's so many benefits to reading, to being a reader. All of my best ideas and my most intractable seeming problems, like all that stuff gets resolved and worked out with a stack of books on hand. And and journaling too. I could probably do a whole nother episode or whatever on the practice of journaling and how it kind of is sort of a yin and the yang with reading. Um, I'll save that for another day. But So I have a stack of books that I read and reread, and I read quotes from it on a daily basis. I kind of call them like my, my little canon. And there, there's things like Elizabeth Kluber Ross's work on death and dying, which I haven't had a big, like a big loss or anything like that in my life that provoked me to read these ten years ago. I was actually a hospital volunteer, and that's where I kind of, I think that's how I kind of got into it. But her books really are not about death. I mean, they're called death and dying, but it's really about how to live when you study death. Um, it's not heavy. It's not depressing. It's not anxiety provoking. It's actually just really awesome stuff that I it's really shaped my life reading her work it's been so influential I can't imagine being the person I am today without having read those books in college and having kept them close by to reread on uh, almost daily basis just the little quotes uh, that's one of them that's uh, 
in my stack on an ongoing basis. I have a book called My Friend Fear by Mira Patel, uh, which is great for dealing with fear and anxiety. It's been kind of a lifesaver. And I have things like The Seven Laws of Spiritual Success by Deepak Chopra. There's times when a book can rotate in or out of the pile. I had some books on mindfulness in there for a long time, and I kind of find myself not looking at them as often. Um, I had Thinking Grow Rich was so heavily used when I was younger. It's I don't know why I, I used duct tape, but it's held together with duct tape, and the pages are falling out. And it doesn't hold as much meaning for me now. I feel like I've shifted to a more spiritual, giving kind of place, and I'm teaching. And, you know, I read that book when I was flying airplanes and trying to sell real estate and things. So it's still around. I still have it. It, it. Books change what they mean to us as we are in different phases of our life. I mean, I read Harry Potter as a kid, as I've mentioned, and I've watched the movies over and over again since then, but I hadn't gone back and read the book since last summer. Last summer, I went back and reread the entire series as an adult, and it's like all the same familiar stories are there, but there's all this stuff that has such a different meaning to me being in my 30s and having gone through stuff that I wouldn't have seen when I was 12. And so it's like getting the gift of a new book in a way or a new story um, on top of everything it already did mean to me. I can see what it kind of meant to me when I was 12. Or maybe I've forgotten. Maybe I've forgotten some of the things that were so important to me when I read it in high school. And those are kind of gone to me now, but I'm seeing it through a new lens, through new eyes uh, at this point in my life. So each book in that pile kind of gives me a gift, gives me something I need that day or something I need to remember. We all forget these little bits of ourselves on a daily basis in small or bigger ways. These books ground us and bring us back. And this can be a nonfiction or a fiction book. It could be spiritual stuff, whatever your, your religion is. Maybe you have the Bible or the Upanishads or whatever the case may be. Um, or, you know, maybe... It's something to do with science or space, and that's just what grounds you to the deepest level of your being. And we need these books to anchor us. There's someone else's voice echoing inside of us, reminding us of our deeper truths. Um, sometimes we know or we think we know why a book calls to us, why it's a unique form of bibliotherapy for us. And other times we really don't. Like, I don't know why I love this Southern Reach trilogy I keep talking about so much. I don't know. They're kind of like really scary. They're sci-fi horror, which isn't really the type of thing I normally read. Like, I can't read Stephen King. I've tried. It's just horrific to me. But <laughs> these books, for some reason, really just calm me. And like, I read them and they're scary, but they're scary in this controlled way. And I don't know, maybe because I've already read them through and I know how they end and stuff. Um, but again, I don't really know. I just... I'm drawn to them and they give me a kind of a feeling and they help get me through specific periods and phases in my life. And so I love them for that. In addition to all that, reading sharpens our focus. It lengthens our attention span. It teaches us that effort has to be paid in before we get a reward. You have to read, you have to slog through sometimes parts of books. I mean, I'm also, I'm also not big on just finishing a book because I started it. I don't know. I have a lot of unfinished books. I have a lot of finished books too, but if I'm not into it, I'll put it down. And I, I have, I can't even tell you how many times I'll pick up a book a year or five years later and finish it. And all of a sudden it's great. Um, but I just wasn't really into it at the time. I don't know. Um, that's happened to me with Jonathan Franzen's work a few times with the corrections and with freedom. I read half, got really disinterested in it. Um, and then 
at a later point in my life, picked it up and finished it and didn't necessarily love it, but it meant something a little different, I guess. Um, I don't know, because I know I, I don't read just to read. I don't really have that discipline when it comes to books. And maybe that's because I do love them so much. And if, if it's not this book that I'm not really enjoying, I'll grab another book that I, that I do love. But it, it takes us about 20 or 30 minutes sometimes to get really deeply settled into a book, doesn't it? To get to that point where we're lost in it and just sucked into that world and where time around us is unfolding in a, a faster, like more slippery way, or we've just lost touch with time altogether. So what do we want for our children? Instead of trying so hard to pull them away from screens, what can we do to pull them towards the world of reading and books? If we make it a task or a chore, they're never going to become readers. So how do we kind of sell it to them? This is a question I'm asking myself as a preschool teacher. Um, I bought a new book on gender identity, brand new book. It's got beautiful art. It's a hardcover, and there's a big red kind of tag stripe thing on the front that says autographed. And I was just going to throw that away, and I stopped myself. I'm going to leave it on, and I'm going to take a piece of advice from How to Raise a Reader, and I'm going to gift wrap this book, and I'm going to bring it to my circle time and tell the children, we have something really special here. Like, guess what it is? And and we'll open it, and I'll read it with them and allow it to like shake shake things up and transform their world a little bit. Hopefully the way that so many books have done for me. I started reading Harry Potter when I was 12. And I, I read the series and I grew age-wise like alongside Harry in the stories. And I was always roughly the same age as him. Um, they weren't released quite as fast as it would have needed to be, I guess. Because he was 17 or 18 in the last book and that was my 21st birthday. I remember waiting in line for it. And I was 12 when I started. So roughly I was the same age as him. And those stories and those characters were really woven into the fabric and the fiber of my being as I grew up. Think and Grow Rich influenced me heavily. Um, and Deepak Chopra's writing since the age of 18. So this one episode, I'm not sure how, how long I've talked today, but I have a feeling it's going to be one of my longer episodes. And I think it's going to turn into a series on reading, no doubt. I'm going to test out some of my ideas in the classroom and report back. Because like I said, I'm really, I'm really surprised with myself that I haven't been more into this and connected these dots with my reading and my work with children. And it's kind of just been something in the background for me. Not quite sure why, but I'm all charged up now to see what I can do to foster this culture with my children every day, to bring more intention there. Uh, I just ordered a whole bunch of new books. I went a little crazy on Amazon. Some that are new to me, some that are old from when I was a kid that I'm really excited to read back through and see like I remember what I was reading but I don't remember much else from when I was a kid um, I ordered a, a chapter book or what I think is a chapter book called The Cricket in Times Square and I have a very vague memory of reading this but we like we don't remember like we don't remember what people said to us right this is a popular phrase that we remember how they made us feel and it's similar with books all the books that I read as a kid like I don't remember much like I know I read Hatchet and I loved it and I know that's about a boy stranded in the woods that's about all I can tell you but I remember how it made me feel and so I'm excited to get back into these books and to share them with the kids I work with to read them to reread them to have conversations with the children and the families and parents and then come back and I'm thinking I'm going to kind of talk about them in little mini episodes here on the show and so I would I would recommend How to Raise a Reader by Pamela Paul. 
and Maria Russo. It's their editors for the New York Times Book Review, and it's just a fantastic book. Wherever, and it goes from reading with babies all the way through teens, and what you can do to kind of foster this culture. And like anything else, in, in any of the books I've talked about today, I don't agree with everything I read, and that that's something really critical we can teach our children. And that's something my mom always told me growing up. Just because it's written down doesn't mean you believe it. And so there's a lot of books that I, I love and I get so much out of them, but there's always things where you're going to diverge a little bit. Um, and I, I mean, I love this How to Raise a Reader, but there's a couple sticky spots. I don't really know what they're talking about with gender. Like there's one point where they say girls' brains are ready to read earlier than boys. I have no idea. They don't cite any research for that. I don't know where they got that. And most of the reading I've done is um, showing that, that any statements on the developing brain or, or the brain in general of men and women, male, female, it's really kind of biased stuff. And the research, like people will say, anyway, I, I'm not, I, I can go on and on and on about gender and neurosexism and things like that, which I'll save that for another day too, Um I guess my point with that is really just to take it with a grain of salt. Anything that you read, anything that you read in general, if you're not sure where you resonate, or maybe if you are even too sure that you do agree with stuff, maybe books are really great for challenging you on that too and, and getting you out of your own shell. I mean, I started along with my little bit about reading the news. There's a website called allsides.com and you can go on that website and they have the top stories of the day with the left, right, and center headline version from different websites. And, you know, I already spent all this time talking about how I don't want to read online and whatnot. But that's an example of where technology is really useful. I'll go just just kind of check out where uh, all the different news sources are, are, where they lie on the kind of spectrum or continuum of politics and how they're reporting stories. So... That's a, that's a reading thing. It's online, but it's still reading, and it's a way to, to read something that you maybe you don't agree with, and it's going to challenge you. You're going to learn and grow a lot more by reading something where you don't agree and having to work your brain up into, into coming up with how to still believe what you believe and kind of assimilate this new stuff in. It's much more of a challenge. It's not as easy, but you're going to grow more when you read opposing points of view. So anyway, the book is Solid Gold, and I really do recommend it. And I will be back in hopefully about a week or so. And I'm going to review this book that I bought, this picture book, which call, is called It Feels Good to Be Yourself, a book about gender identity. And it's written by Teresa Thorne. And it's illustrated by Noah Grigny or Greeny. Not exactly sure how to pronounce it. Um, that's another downside or <laughs> something to do with being a reader is uh, I do mispronounce things sometimes because I spend a lot of time reading and not as much time kind of talking. Um, but par for the course, what can I say? So thanks for sticking with me today and I will see you next time. And again, be sure to go check out my Patreon page and I'll link it in the show notes, patreon.com slash childhood evolved. And please sign up. It'll, it'll mean the world to me to see your support represented there. Thanks. Thank you.